estimates by Christian research groups put the annual number of Christians killed as a direct result of their faith at about 8,000 people per year. Another study found that 111 countries either restrict or are hostile to Christianity. It's reported that there are more than 100 million Christians suffering persecution around the globe. In North Korea alone, there are 50 to 70,000 Christians being held in detention camps. Throughout history, it's been estimated that there's 70 million Christians who've been killed for their profession of faith. Annual estimates that there's maybe as many as 100,000 who've been killed since 1990. But this is nothing new. It's been going on since the fall in the Garden of Eden. It was not long after Adam and Eve had rebelled that their son Cain killed his brother Abel. And therein is a picture of the reality that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent would have hostility and animosity for the ages until the coming of the Christ and his second coming. But sometimes this can take us by surprise, especially for new Christians. You come to saving faith and you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and you turn away from a life of rebellion, sometimes even uh, sins that have tremendous social consequences like drugs and alcohol, and, and then it seems as if family and friends around you would rather you be a drunk or a drug addict than a Christian. And you're shocked by this reality. But it really is an unseen reality that Jesus told his disciples. And this is one of the things that he wanted to communicate them as he's going to depart from them through his death and resurrection. Namely, that on the one hand, as friends of Christ, they are to exhibit a tremendous love for one another. But also they need to realize as friends of Christ, they will encounter a hostile world. A world that is opposed to Christ and his ways. And so I want to give you four reasons this morning to presume upon hatred from and yet preach the gospel to the world. The first reason is because Jesus is hated by the world. We see that in most plain terms in verse 18. We also see it in verse 20 and 21, Jesus says to his disciples, and again, this is the upper room discourse. This is the evening before Jesus' death. He tells his disciples in verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. He tells his disciples if the world hates you, you need to understand it hated me first. And because it hates me first, you should not be shocked that it hates you. 
Verse 20, Jesus continues with this theme when he says, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your word also. Jesus' argument here is something that he laid out in chapter 13. A slave is not greater than its master. If they, if in, in the context of John 13, when Jesus used this, he said, basically, if I, your master, wash the feet of the disciples, you also should wash one another's feet. But here, in this context, he uses it as an argument for the reality of what they will experience in their relationship with the world around them. He says, if they persecute me, and they were, it would be later that within 12 hours that Roman soldiers would come and apprehend Jesus under the lies and deception of the Jewish religious leaders. It would be within 24 hours that Jesus would be suspended between heaven and earth, hanging upon a Roman cross. But this was the culmination of of persecution and animosity and hostility that Jesus had been receiving from the beginning of his public ministry. And so here he says, if the world hates you, if the world, uh, I'm sorry, persecutes me, it's going to persecute you also. If the world hates me, it's going to hate you also. Now we need to define a little bit as to who the world is. What is the world? Well, in the Gospel of John, John uses the, the word world in, in, in a handful of different ways. And I think within this context, Jesus means the world of unbelief, the world system of unbelieving ideas and ideologies, which obviously contain people who embrace and believe those unbelieving ideologies. And then within this very context, the world that would persecute Jesus and that would persecute his followers was actually very religious people, namely the Pharisees, namely the scribes, namely those religious leaders of Jesus's day that wanted him dead because they felt that Jesus was sapping from their authority. And so Jesus says, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And then notice this connection at the end of verse 20. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. You see, the assumption here is that Jesus' followers, Jesus' disciples will have the same message that Jesus has. Because after all, if you have a message today that is not the same message as Jesus, but instead is the message of the world, then the world will embrace you. But if your message is the message of Jesus, if your words are the words of Jesus, if your beliefs are the beliefs of Jesus, then you're not going to be loved by the world of unbelief. There is going to be a hostility. J.C. Rao says, do we deserve to be better treated than Jesus? Are we better than he? 
Let us fight against these murmuring thoughts and let us drink quietly the cup which the Father gives us. And then notice in verse 21, Jesus says, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. They will do all these things for my name's sake. In other words, because you represent me, they will do this to you. It is interesting in the book of Acts, this is a common theme. Those early Christians were persecuted by the world. They're in prison. They're chased down. And in, in, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 40 and 41, listen to what it says. It says, after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they're beaten, beaten probably bloody. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and to release them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. They rejoiced that they were privileged to suffer for Jesus. It was in a sense, in a very real sense, a kind of badge of honor that they had been tested through the trials of persecution. They had been beaten, and by God's grace, they stood faithful to him. I was able to observe this when I was in China. One of the workers there would say something like, see that person over there? They spent two weeks in solitary confinement, being interrogated. See that person over there? They were tortured for a day and a night and they stayed faithful to Christ. And all of a sudden, you know, the respect levels would go up. And then notice this last phrase at the end of verse 21, because they do not know the one who sent me. They do this, they hate Jesus, they hate his people because they do not know the one who sent me. And again, Jesus is speaking particularly here of the Jewish people who opposed him. Who would have said, we love God. We believe the Bible. And yet Jesus says, no. No, they they don't know the one who sent me. They don't know the Father because Jesus, you remember, as, as John records, is the Word who is with God, the Word who is from God, the one who is in the beginning with God, who is the perfect expression of God as God in the flesh. And so when God came on the scene, did the whole world embrace God in the flesh? Did they roll out the red carpet and say, Creator, you're finally here? No. John tells us he was in the world and the world was made through him, but what? The world did not recognize him. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. And so this is, 
true today. People may believe in a God. They may even call him the God of the Bible, but they reject Christ. And if they reject Christ, they do not know the one who sent Christ. He is closely connected with the Father. He is the perfect representative of the Father. So that if you reject Jesus, you reject God, the true God. So this is, this is vitally important. Jesus is telling his disciples, stop, don't try to court the world. You need to presume upon the hatred of the world. But as we're going to see at the end of this passage, but to witness, to testify of Christ to the world. Why? Because the world hated Jesus. One of the great sins of our modern era is to try to court the world, to try to impress the world, to try to gain the approval of the world. And you look throughout church history, and this, is, this never goes well. You look at Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the, the Elizabethan, or I'm sorry, the Victorian Baptist preacher. And during what was called the downgrade controversy, as, as many of these uh, believers and teachers and seminaries began to embrace Darwinian evolution and began to apply that to biblical studies and the evolution of the text of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon smelled a rat. A dead rat. And he called it out. But most of his Baptist cohorts did not listen. And the church in the UK was decimated. And those lies and unbelief spread all throughout the world and into many of the mainline denominations. So that what initially was a toying with the text of Scripture by embracing Darwinian ideas of evolution ultimately came to denying virgin birth, denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus, denying the substitutionary atonement. And that's why today in most of your mainline Protestant denominations within America... Anything is free game. Any kind of sexual perversion even is applauded. And so many evangelicals in our contemporary era have, have, have bought into that idea. And, and even through the church growth movement that we just need to impress the world. We need to, we need to you know, be like the world. And what winds up happening is... is is in this compromise with the intention to reach the world, you become just like the world. But you see, Christians and God's people throughout all of history need to presume that the world and its unbelieving ideologies is not going to be friendly to Christianity. J.C. Ryle says, 
It is not weaknesses and inconsistencies of Christianity that the world hates. The world loves that, right? Anytime it comes out, somebody's living a hypocritical life. It's not weaknesses and inconsistencies that, of, of Christians that the world hates, but their grace. The, the, the fruit of the Spirit, the, those Christ-like characteristics. And then he continues, wrong expectations are one of the great cause of Christians feeling troubled and perplexed. When you think that the world is going to embrace you, you get the wind knocked out of you when they don't. And you think, is something wrong with me? But you need to understand, this is the nature of unbelief. It's hostile to the truth. So the first reason to presume upon the hatred of the world and to yet to preach Christ to the world is because Jesus is hated by the world. Secondly, Jesus called you out of the world. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you, would, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. If you believe what the world believes, guess what? The world will love you. If you live the way the world lives, guess what? The world will love you. If you participate and celebrate the things that the world celebrates, they will love you. But Jesus says, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Because Jesus says, you are not of the world. That is, you are not of the same beliefs and ideologies as the world. But instead, you have been called out of the world. You've been chosen out of the world. Arthur Pink says, the man who is conformed to the world takes part in its politics, shares in its pleasures, acts according to its principles, even though he beats the name of Christ, will not be ostracized or persecuted. The woman who is conformed to this world, who follows its fashions, who enjoys its society, who works for its reformation, will not be shunned by it. The world loves its own. The world loves its own. But those who have been chosen out of the world, they will experience the hostility, the hatred, and even the persecution of the world. Imagine with me for a moment a benevolent monarch, which, and you're thinking, may seem to be a contradiction in terms. But imagine with me for a moment a benevolent, a good monarch who is kind to all the subjects in his kingdom. But there is a rebellion within his kingdom. All of his subjects begin to rebel against this good king. And this king resolves that he is going to start a new kingdom. 
And he begins to tap on the shoulders some who are in the midst of that rebellion. And in an act of kindness, he summons them to himself and promises them to be a part of his new kingdom if they would but shift allegiance. What do you think is going to be the attitude to the rest of those who are in rebellion? The rest of those who have set up a coup and tried to usurp the authority of that king. It's not going to be good. They're going to be viewed as treasonous, as traitors, as not committed to the cause, but instead aligning their allegiance with the benevolent king. Well, in case you haven't figured it out, God is the benevolent king. Christ is his prince. And he has inaugurated a new kingdom and he's calling out of the darkness, out of the rebellion, out of this lost, rebellious world, a kingdom for his own. D.A. Carson says, former rebels who have by grace, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to the rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. And so, my friend, this morning, are you trying to be just like the world? Christ has chosen a people out of the world to be different than the rest of the world, to not be like the same as the world, but this is going to provoke the fire of the world. And so you may be sitting here and thinking about following Christ. And you need to know that if you resolve to follow Christ, to put your trust in him and his death and resurrection, follow him, you need to understand the cost. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you are going to follow Jesus and shift allegiance to him, it will cost you. Now in this country, we've lived under the bubble of the founding documents of this country with religious freedom. But you don't have to be a political science major to figure out there's a lot of people who want to undo that and who would be more than happy to send the members of Sovereign Grace Chapel to an internment camp, to a re-education camp. And if they get their way, and it may just be before enough time, that will happen. It's, it's happening to our friends, our brothers and sisters across the globe. All you have to go to is places like Indonesia, many parts of the Muslim world today. And that's what our brothers and sisters are experiencing. 
experiencing. And we've lived under the, a bubble of protection by God's kindness and grace because of the wisdom of the founders of this country. But I don't know how long it's going to hold out. And it's not promised. Paul said, if any man desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he will be persecuted. Right now, it just might be losing a job, ostracized from family. Who knows what it will be like in the future? But you need to resolve, if you're going to follow Jesus, that this is the cost. And I want to I tell you, it's worth it. It may cost you everything, but it's worth it. Jesus explained it like this. There was a man who, who was walking along the road and he stumbles upon something in the ground and he realizes that it's a treasure. And he goes and sells all that he has so that he can rightfully own that piece of land that contains that treasure. It says enjoy over it. He sold all that he had so that he could have that treasure. My friends, Jesus is the treasure that he is worth all that you have, all that you own, all of your freedoms. He promises eternal life forever. This life is but a breath. And if you die without Christ, you will spend an eternity in hell forever. But if you but trust in Jesus and forsake all to follow him, he promises eternal life. And so, friend, yes, there is a cost. But when you weigh the scales, Christ versus the opposition of the world, in Christ you find a forever friend. So if you've not yet trusted in him, I urge you to do that. But also as believers, as we encounter this hostility and animosity of the world, there can be temptations towards several different reactions. There can be a temptation to retreat. Well, I'm going to move my family up and to no man's land. We're going to live off the land, be like Amish. And I get that temptation, right? But yet, we would be neglecting the very reason why Jesus left us here on earth. Namely, to be a light to this world. There can also be the temptation to hate back. Well, you hate me, I'll hate you. But that's also not what we're commanded to do. Jesus said, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who abuse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. We're supposed to love our enemies like our master Jesus did. Listen to what Jesus prays in John 17, verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He's talking about his disciples. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Then he prays to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. 
So we are chosen out of the world. We are called out of the world to be different than the rest of the world, but then only to go back into the world to call the world out of the world. Friends, this is our mission field. This lost, absurd world. Can I get an amen? Some absurd ideas out there. Absolutely bonkers. It's, it's the absurdity of unbelief. Once you depart from a Christian worldview, once you depart from the scriptures, you, you have nothing to anchor you. And there's nothing that will hold your beliefs down to reality. Utter absurdity. But this is our mission field. And so we can embrace the hatred. Assume it. Don't try to court the world, but contend with the ideas, the unbelief of the world with the gospel, with the message of Christianity. So, first reason to presume upon the hatred of the world and to preach the gospel to the world is because Jesus is hated by the world. Secondly, because you were chosen out of the world. Third, Jesus convicts the world. Verse 22 through 24. Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would, have, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father also. It's interesting the way Jesus puts this here. He said... If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. Now, for those of you who are tempted to instruct Jesus in a proper anthropology and the doctrine of sin or a proper homartiology and say, wait, wait, Jesus, no, they actually were sinners already. I think you get it. Jesus understands, no, people have sinned before he came to them. But they would not be guilty of this sin, this sin tremendously heinous sin that they now were guilty of. Namely, that they had encountered God incarnate and they stuck him on a Roman tree and crucified him. This was the sin that they were guilty of. They had the fullness of the revelation of God in the flesh and they stiff-armed him. This was a tremendous sin. Notice how Jesus puts this in this verse. In verse 24, he says, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But they, now they have seen me and hated me and my father as well. Friends, ponder this with me for a moment. Jesus was in their midst doing tremendous miracles that testified to who he was. I mean, he, he fed thousands of people by creating bread and fish enough for them. 5,000 men, maybe upwards 20,000 people. He interrupted a funeral procession. Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain, 
is coming along with tears in her eyes. And she's, Jesus sees what's happening here. And he brings back to life her dead son. Over and over, he heals the lepers, he heals the blind, he heals the deaf, the mute, the lame. Over and over, Jesus demonstrated that he was who he claimed to be in their very midst as God in the flesh, and they rejected him. Oh, what a great sin this was. And Jesus was indicting them on this. This was great evidence of their hatred and hostility towards him, towards the Father, and ultimately prognosticating how they would relate to Jesus' disciples. This is why Jesus indicted those contemporary cities that he preached to and did miracles at. Listen to Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of the miracles were done because they did not repent. And Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, those were ancient pagan cities that God had destroyed. If the miracles that had performed amongst you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And then Jesus says, and you, Capernaum. Capernaum was like Jesus' home base of ministry. You, Capernaum, you will, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom that perverse, wicked city on the plain. If the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than it will be for you. Jesus is saying those wicked pagan cities that God wiped off the map, it will be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than for you Horizon, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Why? Because they saw the miracles. They heard the teachings. What's the point here? To whom much is given, much is required. There are degrees of punishment in hell based upon how much a person knows. What Jesus is saying here is this is a tremendous sin. The crucifixion of God in the flesh, the hatred and rejection of Jesus. What a demonstration of the depravity and wickedness of man's heart. When man sees God in his clearest terms and rejects him. Now, Jesus is not here in the flesh. The elders of Sovereign Grace Chapel, as far as I know, have not performed any miracles in your midst. But nonetheless, we have here tremendous exposure to God's truth. 
we hear God's word being preached. Many of you young people are growing up in Christian homes, hearing God's word taught over and over. You're memorizing scripture. These are good things, but these are also dangerous things. Because if you reject those truths, your accountability is far greater. Your hell will be hotter than the child who grows up in Saudi Arabia and never hears the gospel of Jesus. And so it's a solemn responsibility. J.C. Ryle says, He that dwells in a land of open Bibles and preached gospel and yet dreams that he will stand in the judgment day on the same level with the untaught Chinese is fearfully deceived. He will find to his own cost, except he repents, that his judgment will be according to his light. The mere fact that he has knowledge and did not improve it will itself prove to be one of his greatest sins. He who knew the master's will and did it not shall be beaten with many stripes. Luke 12, 47. You see, friends, the same sun that shines upon the budding flower and causes it to blossom and bloom is the sun, same sun that beats down upon the trash can with dirty diapers in it and causes a stench to arise to heaven. And I know something about trash cans with dirty diapers. It stinketh. But God's truth has that effect. It causes growth and it also causes a hardness of heart when it is not met with faith. When it is not met with humility and welcoming of God's truth. H.A. Ironside tells a story of, uh, that came from a missionary. This missionary was uh, deep into an African tribal village. And this missionary had hanging on one of his trees a, a, a round mirror. And the wife of the chief of the village came across this mirror. And she shouted at the missionary, who is that picture of that person in the tree? She was looking in the mirror. That is an ugly person. She had never seen all of her tribal paint and her hardened features. And... The missionary was in an awkward position as he had to explain to this tribal chief's wife that it was actually her reflection in the mirror. But he said, ma'am, you know, this is actually a reflection of yourself. She said, I want to buy that mirror. And the missionary really didn't want to sell the mirror, but she kept insisting and he really didn't want to cause a whole ruckus and fight over the selling of the mirror. So eventually, he agreed and he sold the mirror to her. Immediately upon purchasing the mirror, she shattered it. 
And she said, now no one will see my reflection. Well, you say that's a silly story. But you see, this is the reality of humanity. We are guilty before God. We think we can do away with the Bible, do away with Christianity, do away with God, kick prayer out of schools, kick God out of society so that we cannot see our ugly selves in the mirror. But it's an impossible task. It's a fool's errand. But you see, this is the posture of the world. And so as Christians, we need to learn to respond to the animosity, not with a jaded hardness of heart, not with anger and hatred, but even with a joy. Did you know that's what Jesus said? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Rejoice and be glad. What? Rejoice and be glad over persecution, over hatred, animosity? That's right. We can do it because this is ensuring that we are identifying with Christ. We are standing with Christ. Dustin Benge in his book, The Loveliest Place on Earth, it's a book about the church, but he has a chapter about persecution. And he says, Jesus commands us to rejoice in the face of persecution. It leaves no room for the church to stagger into self-pity and dejection. Far too many of us are known more for our whining and complaining than for our rejoicing and gladness. Self-pity spoils the garments of Christ's bride and defaces her beauty. The only acceptable responses to persecution are joy and celebration with the firm assurance that our treasure resides in heaven, not in this temporal world. That's good. That's real good. And that is sage counsel for us. And I get it because we're seeing the collapse of civilization. We're looking at the the world that our children will grow up and grandchildren and other young people. And it's hard to see. And it's tempting to become whiny and complaining and even then to embrace the Grievous culture of our society. We are an oppressed people. We need special protections and treatment. Friends, we need to buck up and stop whining. We need to wipe the frown off of our, pla- off of our face and smile because this world is not our home. Our treasure is not here. The apostle Peter says we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and never fades away. It is kept, protected in heaven. It is untouchable. And because of that, our joy should be untouchable. But I get it. It's hard, right? 
perhaps our whininess and complainingness is because we're far too nearsighted looking at the world around us and we need to look past all the news outlets and look into eternity and that's only going to come with an open Bible. Well, we must move on. We need to presume upon the hatred of the world and preach the gospel to the world because Jesus is hated by the world. Jesus chose us out of the world. Jesus convicts the world. Now lastly, Jesus carries on the tradition. Notice verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that was written in their law They hated me without a cause. Jesus says this is happening because it's a fulfillment of of what was written in their law. And here he uses the word law or Torah basically as a description of the entire scriptures. Sometimes the, the Bible uses those terms. Sometimes law speaks of those first five books of the Bible. Sometimes law just speaks of the whole Old Testament. Here it speaks of the whole Old Testament. He's probably quoting from Psalm 69. He may be quoting from, I think, Psalm uh, 35, 19 as well, or, or Psalm 69, 4. They're very similar. But, but in each of these statements, it would appear to be situations in which King David is being persecuted before he's king. He's been anointed as king, but he's on the run. Remember, it was Saul who was the current king who was chasing him like a flea in the mountains and persecuting him, and oppressing him. Why? For no just cause. And what Jesus is saying here is, is this is what their law says. This is what the scriptures say. This is the history of God's people. This is the history of the Davidic dynasty. And I am the son of David in the flesh. That all that had happened to David was a picture, it was a type of what would happen to Messiah when he comes, and I am that Messiah. But it's really the tradition of, of God's people, is it not? It was the history of the Hebrews in Egypt as their babies are being tossed into the Nile. It was the history of the prophets during the time of the kings. It was the history of Daniel and his three friends, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. You know their other names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's the history of God's people. Do you think you deserve better? Do you think you should be exempted from hostility from the world? No. And so our persecution ought not to be because of our nastiness. You know, some, sometimes Christians can act like jerks. You don't want to provoke persecution because you're acting like a jerk, but because of Christ. His persecution, they hated me without a cause. There was no good reason 
to hate Jesus. John Brown touches on this. There was nothing in Christ to provoke hatred in any more but in any but morally disordered, depraved minds. Nothing in his character. It was faultless. Nothing in his doctrines. They were all true. Nothing in his laws. They were all holy, just, and good. He never had done the world any harm. He spent his life in bestowing favors on men. Why then did they hate him? Why then did they persecute him? Why did they put him to death? They hated him because they hated the Father. And again, this is the lot of God's people. Sometimes in extreme ends of martyrdom, sometimes in more basic ways, being passed over because of a job promotion or or for a job promotion because of your faith in Christ. John Patton, he was a missionary to cannibals. You thought your neighbors were nasty. He was a missionary to cannibals on the New Hebrides Islands in the mid-1800s. He suffered greatly and faced death many times. He described one time when a native tried to kill him with an axe and another man stepped in and saved his life. He wrote this, quote, Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how an attack might be made. And yet, with my trembling hand clasped in the hand of the, once na- the one nailed on Calvary, now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. He faced being eaten, murdered. We don't face that kind of hostility yet, but we still need to grasp hold of the hand that has been pierced by nails, the Lord Jesus So how do we respond to this hatred? Do we retreat to the mountains? Do we get nasty? Notice verse 26 and 27. When the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus now tells them that the Holy Spirit is coming. And he will testify about Jesus. He is the spirit of truth. Well, how is he going to do this testifying? Well, I think there's a hint in verse 27 when it says, and you will testify also. Namely, that the Holy Spirit is that helper, that paraclete, that one who comes alongside believers and enables them also to testify of who? Who at the end of verse 26? He will testify about me. In other words, the message that we have to the lost and dying world is the same message that they hate. But it's their only hope. Namely, to bow to King Jesus, to trust in him and his saving work on the cross, to receive his overtures of grace and kindness 
Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light, and you will have rest for your souls. We are to testify about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit enables this. Now, obviously, this is immediately for those apostles who were there. They had been with Jesus from the beginning. This is the same thing that had to be on the resume of the apostles when they were choosing another apostle to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1. You had to be with Jesus from the beginning at John's baptism. But remember, John is writing to Christians and probably all the apostles were already dead except John himself. And by implication, all of us are witnesses. We testify. We testify about Jesus. He's the only hope for this world that hates him. And as we testify, as we speak the word of God, as we tell them about Jesus and what he's done and what he came to do and call them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Some are called out of the world and brought to Jesus. Do you have a hard time talking to others about Jesus? I get it. It provokes more anger, right? There's a temptation to draw back, to wonder, what is this person going to think about me? But but let me ask you this. Do Do you have a hard time talking about your children? Do you have a hard time talking about your grandchildren? Do you have a difficult time talking about your favorite sports team? Probably not. Why? Because you you love your children. You love your grandchildren. You're proud of your children, right? If you're a Browns fan, you may not be proud of the Browns, but that's okay. You still don't have a difficult time talking about them. But I get it. There's not a cost involved with talking about any of those things, right? Nobody's going to say, get angry. Don't talk to me about your grandchildren. No, no, no. Let me see pictures, you know. It's more welcoming. But there's more cost involved. People get nasty. But yet the realization is they don't need to hear about your grandchildren, but they do need to hear about Jesus if they're going to be reconciled to Jesus. And so we need to forget about ourselves, forget about what other people think of us, and will be willing to speak up for Jesus. That is the method that the Holy Spirit uses in this lost and dying world. Second Corinthians five eleven fourteen says, "Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men." For we are made manifest to God in our hope, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Let the love of Christ constrain you and compel you to be an ambassador for Jesus. And who knows what the Lord might do.
I mentioned the book of Acts earlier. Well, you don't have to read very far in the book of Acts to see the animosity and hatred that came towards the followers of Jesus. In fact, it's in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen, who was endowed greatly with the Holy Spirit of God, was able to speak wisdom that, that the, the, the religious leaders were not able to refute. And encountering such hostility and such hatred and such animosity, what did he do? He testified of Jesus. And they killed him for it. Stone after stone after stone pummeled his head until he breathed his last. And one of the great persecutors of the church was there giving approval with a smile on his face, no doubt. Saul of Tarsus. Who would wind up writing the bulk of the New Testament. Who would wind up being one of the greatest advocates and ambassadors for Jesus Christ who's ever walked this planet. Who knows what the Lord might do if we presume that the world's going to hate us. We don't need to become like the world to win the world, but instead to preach and to testify of Christ to this world. Let's pray.